welcome to this Valentine's edition of Navarra Live. I'm Moya Lothi-McLean, and tonight my date is the charming Ash Sarkar. Ash, welcome. Thanks for having me. I just, you know, wish that this wasn't the only way I could see you, Moya. I had a dinner for two planned, but you said you'd be in the studio. Unfortunately, I simply cannot splash out for dinner for two right now. We are in a cost of living crisis. But for all you lucky viewers at home, we have a packed show for you. We will be talking about the BBC offices in India being raided. There's more on that pesky cost of living crisis. And Lee Anderson has opened his mouth yet again. On to our first story, and we're getting personal. How much sex are you having? What happens in the bedroom is an endless source of fascination. The frequency with which we knock boots is analysed by scientists, sociologists and armchair psychologists alike. But for decades now, research suggests that those in the West are having less sex. And we should be worried. The latest piece to examine this trend of decreasing sexual intimacy is a New York Times op-ed penned by sex and relationships writer Magdalene J. Taylor. Titled, Have More Sex, Please, Taylor argues that there is a loneliness epidemic among Americans, which, she says, parallels a decline in sex. And the stats seem to back her up. The 2021 General Sex Survey found that a quarter of Americans hadn't had sex once in the past 12 months, the highest level of sexlessness in the survey's history. This has been a consistent trend, with the level of sexlessness reported rising steadily since 2004. Now, this survey also marked the first time that more than half of Americans surveyed had sex once a month or less. But it's not just our friends over the pond. Comparable studies in the UK tell the same story. Once a decade, UK researchers carry out the National Surveys of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, which is called NATSAL for short, where they ask 10,000 people everything from how often they masturbate to whether they send sex. That is sexy texts for those not au fait. Now, the next one is being conducted as we speak but previous iterations have also seen a dramatic drop in regular sexual activity. In the early 1990s, the median number of times people aged 16 to 44 reported having sex every month was five. But when we get to the early noughties, that number drops to four times. Then to 2012, that number drops to three. Can you see where we're going? One explanation that has been offered up for this sexual shortfall is a similar decline in cohabiting couples. But the act academic director for Natsau, Soazig Clifton, has said if you extract the data of couples who do live together, there's still a decrease in sexual activity over the 30 years. Clifton also helpfully said studies like Natsau can't easily answer the why questions. But luckily we have with us Ash Sarkar, who maybe can. What was really interesting to me about this Have Sex More Please article is that there is one word which does not feature a single time in the piece's copy, and that's the word attraction. So I find it really strange that there are almost these demands that there is a correct amount to have sex, and there is a total evasion of the central question of, well, how do you meet somebody who you want to have sex with and who wants to have sex with you? Because that seems to be the most difficult prickly, knotty 
issue at the heart of lots of things. It's at the heart of the epidemic of loneliness. I think it's at the heart of the, you know, the culture of the manosphere or indeed incel culture. Loneliness is something which gets people to turn towards people like Andrew Tate, who sort of say the solution to it is to become more domineering in your personal and your sexual life. This question of attraction, I think, is inseparable from the question of sex. And so rather than going, okay, well, here's the correct amount of sex that everybody should be having. Um, I think that what these surveys point to is a lack of authentic connection with your own sexual self, whatever that might be. Something that this article tries to pick up on is an idea that this decline in sexual frequency is equivalent to a loneliness crisis. Ash, is that a good equation to make? Well, I think if we substitute the word sex for connection, which then tells us that there is, I think, a a sort of crisis of meaningful connection, that does tell us something which rings true across lots of different aspects of our personal lives. So it's not just about how often are you having sex. It might also be how much are you able to, you know, see your family and feel supported by them or meet up with your friends in a way which isn't, you know, oriented around consumption and going out. How difficult is it to access a wider uh, social network if you've got children and childcare is very uh, expensive, for instance. The impact of work and having a, a kind of fractured working life where emails and phone calls and incoming are just constantly demanding our time in what used to be social time, what used to be leisure time, then yeah, do you think there is a crisis? But equating all connection to sex, I think, won't ring true for lots of people. Because of course, you can be in a romantic relationship in which, at least theoretically, sex is available to you and still feel really isolated. Now, I feel like I see this story, yeah, we're covering it, but I feel like I see this story coming up again and again and again. We are obsessed with this idea that people are having less sex. And for the reasons you've touched on, Ash, this might not be the most useful way of looking at the issue. But one thing that I'd like to understand is why is, on the flip side of that, why is declining sexual intimacy a political issue? Why should we care at Navarra Media that people might be having less sex? I think everything that we cover here at Navarra, whether it's something like the cost of living or whether it's something like um, violence against women or whether it's climate change, it all leads back to the same thing, which is what we want is for people to have happy and healthy and dignified lives. And we're always taking aim at or looking at the things which might inhibit living a life which is fulfilled. And sex and relationships are a really big part of that. And we can identify that when, you know, it's almost the hard hitting topics of, um, violence against women or misogyny or, um, access to uh, contraceptives or abortion. We can really understand that, that actually how you live your romantic life and the kind of constraints within it, it's really central to this question of a happy, healthy and fulfilled society. But sometimes it's like when you take away some of the more extreme situations and you just sort of get into uh, that 
gray sludge of the middle of, okay, well, what are the things that many people are experiencing at the moment, but they perhaps don't pass the threshold of extremity, which means that we think of it as a meaningful political topic. We turn away from it because it's like, oh, well, that's a kind of lifestyle, flimsy, frou-frou kind of topic. You know, let's let's save that for the pages of Cosmo. It's not for, you know, communists to talk about. But actually, I think that that stuff is really really important. And one of the things that I think draws people to political movements, whether those are political movements of the left and for the forces of progress, or whether they're drawn to, you know, the real ugliness and vindictiveness of the far right, I think has an awful lot to do with their experiences of human connection and and longing for human connection. So I think we don't get into it. What happens is I think we essentially abandon people uh, to the forces of reaction and the far right. And also we ourselves neglect um, a really important and critical part of our own politics, which is the maximization of happiness for the most people possible. Next story, something that might be contributing to the lack of sex. The cost of living crisis has been deepening over the last year, whether it's rising energy prices, runaway inflation, or the largest tax burden in decades. Almost everybody has been feeling the pinch. And now new demoralizing data from the Office for National Statistics has quantified exactly how much the buying power of your pay packet has dropped. The average wage increased by 6.7% between October and December last year. But as this graph from the Times shows, wages have dropped by 2.5% in real terms in that period. That means taking into account the rising costs of goods and services, your wage in December 2022 was worth 2.5% less than it was in October of that same year. It's one of the largest drops recorded since records began 20 years ago. The only time it was worse was in the immediate fallout of the 2008 financial crash. And as you can see from this graph, based on ONS data, inflation isn't forecast to drop back to the 2% target level set by the Bank of England until the middle of next year, at the earliest. Though, the good news is that, barring unforeseen events, inflation has probably peaked, meaning that the rate by which prices increase has begun to slow. These figures come hot on the heels of another blow to many of your pockets, though. That's because three quarters of the largest English councils have announced that they'll raise council tax by the maximum amount permitted. The maximum used to be 3%, but Chancellor Jeremy Hunt raised that to nearly 5% in his autumn statement last year. So wherever you live, from April this year, the bill from the for the average property is set to increase by about £100. And if you're unlucky enough to live in Croydon, Slough or Thurrock, no, but the bills will be going up even more. The Guardian reports this. Three councils facing major financial difficulties after going effectively bankrupt have been given special dispensation by ministers to increase council tax bills beyond the 499% limit. Croydon's bill will go up by 15%, while Thurrock and Slough councils will each raise bills by 10%. Local councils across the country have been facing a deepening financial crisis thanks to austerity. It's forced many of them to slash services in order to fund a rising demand for social care while simultaneously 
battling inflation. Sam Corcoran is the vice chair of the CCN, that's the county council's network to you at home. He told The Guardian this. We all recognise the cost of living crisis is impacting on every household in the country and disproportionately on low incomes. But we have little choice but to propose council tax rises again next year, with many local authorities reluctantly opting for maximum rises. With councils facing multi-million funding deficits next year, the alternative to council tax rises would be drastic cuts to frontline services at a time when people at the sharp end of the cost of living crisis need us to be there for them. This, of course, is the government's fault, a fact that even Tory councillors are now keen to point out. Drew Mello was leader of the Tory-dominated Bournemouth Christchurch and Poole Council, but yesterday... He resigned, and in doing so, took a blistering swipe at Jeremy Hunt, writing this love letter. My strategy has been simple. A low council tax, high ambition approach to local government. Unleashing unleashing the potential of this fantastic region, but not always resorting to tax hikes to pay for the increasing costs of services. That's why I've continually pushed for finding new, sustainable income sources, as opposed to the easy solution of selling off the family silver and putting the financial burden onto our residents. But it has become clear that this has been at odds with civil servant and treasury orthodoxy, who appear determined that the future of local government is one of maximum council tax and cuts to services. Successive local government ministers, our senior officers and our auditor are determined to hit the taxpayer. The most recent letter from our auditor was the final straw, making clear that despite our long-term financial stability now assured, any attempt to not seek a full council tax rise by generating legal government-sanctioned income streams would be vetoed without even seeing the detail. The system is determined to stop any efforts to lessen the burden to council taxpayers and that's not a situation I can continue to preside over. Every indication from the government is that there won't be any more help for those struggling to live come Jeremy Hunt's budget next month. But a recent poll from YouGov shows almost every sector of society is demanding it. The poll groups people according to those who've been least affected by the cost of living, the calm and comfortable to the most affected by it, the worried and suffering. The majority of Every group, except the most affluent, think that the government should be doing more to help people through the cost of living crisis. And even amongst the richest, nearly 40% think the government isn't doing enough. Sadly, people don't seem to have that much faith that even a Labour government would be able to deal with this crisis. According to the latest Redfield and Wilton polling, just 38% of people think that Labour would effectively address the cost of living crisis, and 39% think that they wouldn't. Just one week ago, that figure was only 36%. Ash, we're all getting poorer. What's the solution? Well, I can tell you what the solution is not. It's not lumping the tax burden on the majority of working people whose incomes have been squeezed and falling in real terms for the past decade and a bit. And that's basically what the Tories are trying to present the choice as. Okay, you want public spending? Well, you're going to have to take a hit to your pocket and your pocket's been squeezed an awful lot for the past decade and a bit. 
And that's not the reality of the economic choices which are available to a responsible government. What's been happening for the past 12 years is that you have had an absolutely stupendous inflation of asset wealth. So if you are part of the asset owning class, maybe you're a landlord, maybe you own multiple properties, um, you know, maybe you're a corporation, you have seen your ability to stack up wealth unimpeded. Um, absolutely blossom since the Conservatives came into power. You've had historically low rates of corporation tax. The differences between capital gains tax and, of course, income tax mean that you've got a preferential rate of taxation if you're somebody who owns shit for a living rather than someone who works for a living. These are all untapped sources of wealth in this country, which could very much be used to fund struggling public services. The second thing is also how are these public services being run? What's happening to the money which is being put into them to run, uh, say, your local council services like bin collection or your local leisure centre, all the way up to things like rail, mail and energy? Well, the fact is, is if, that, is if they're privatised the way these services are uh, currently, it means you've got taxpayer money going in and then leaching out in the form of shareholder profits, which then may go into offshore bank accounts. Um, you know, it's not something which is being reinvested into the service itself. And pretty much everyone, I think, no matter where you live in this country, you will have a story of a council-run service which has been outsourced uh, getting worse. Now, that might be your bin collections going from once a week to once a fortnight, or if you're like me and there is a beloved community leisure centre uh, which has been systematically run down. It's been closed for months for absolutely no reason that anyone can tell. I looked into it and actually the uh, contractor who's been given a load of contracts across the country to run gyms uh, has mysteriously closed a load during the winter. My theory is that it's trying to get out of um, paying energy bills. But everyone's got that story of seeing a real terms decline in the quality of the services that their community relies on. And so you're not getting particularly good value for your money. So if you're somebody who lives in Thurrock or you're somebody who lives in Croydon and you're seeing your council tax go up and you're not seeing a commensurate improvement of your services, you have to go, well, well what the fuck's going on here? So it's not simply about the tax burden. It's also about insourcing. It's about bringing services back under democratic control because at least there's some level of accountability. You can go, all right, well, if my council isn't currently running this service particularly well, and they're the ones who've got the responsibility to deliver the service, well, I'm going to vote for someone else. Else, creates an incentive to make things better. Um, and then I think the third um, you know, piece of the puzzle that we obviously talk about an awful lot is putting money in workers' pockets. Now, that means, I think, funding the benefit system so that people aren't plunged into poverty if they find themselves reliant on universal credit. And it also means giving people the pay rises that they deserve. And it, right now, within the Conservative Party, distributionist has become a very, very dirty word because, of course, they don't want to redistribute. They want the rich to continue to line their own pockets at the expense of workers and the poor. Um, but I am an, an unashamed distributionist. I think it's better if you raise the living standards of 
work, the working classes. And yes, you lower the living standards of the billionaires and the super wealthy in order to pay for it. You don't need that third private fucking jet, I'm afraid. Um, but that argument about distribution, about a fair society, a more equal society being a better society to live in is not one which the Labour Party, unfortunately, are willing to make in those terms. They're focusing, much like the Conservatives do, on the question of growth in order to dodge the question of distribution. Right, who's ready for a bit of good news? Strikes are continuing across the country this week. So here's Strike Watch. And today, university workers, represented by the University and Colleges Union, began their three day strike for improved pay, pensions, and conditions. That's on the back of two days last week and the week before. We've also got civil servants, driving examiners, and museum workers out on the picket line, too. They're being represented by the Public and Commercial Services Union. And later this week, ambulance workers will walk out for two days while airport staff begin a week-long strike on Friday. But one group has called off their industrial action. And it's not because of a legal intervention. It's after they scored a staggering pay rise for their workers. Abiello is a London-based bus operator and its staff have walked out on 20 days since the beginning of this year. But now their employer has made an offer of a whopping 18% increase to end the strikes. Amazing. The 1800 striking workers were members of Unite and its General Secretary Sharon Graham had this to say about the new pay offer. This is an important pay victory. Workers have stood firm and with the support of their union Unite, they've secured a richly deserved pay increase. Unite's constant focus on the jobs, pay and conditions of our members is continuing to deliver increased pay awards for workers. Well done to the bus workers. Ash, do you think we'll see more workers' victories like this one? It's worth noting that Abiello is a private company contracted by Transport for London. Does that make any difference? I think it really does make a difference because the Conservatives have made a rod for their own back when it comes to negotiating with, say, the nurses or the RMT. Because in other sectors, and of course in other governments, Scotland and Wales, you are seeing pay settlements and serious negotiations happening with um, these with these sectors, whether that's transport or whether that's NHS staff. Whereas the Westminster Conservative Party are saying, no, we we absolutely, as a matter of ideology, do not want to give workers what they deserve. We don't want to be seen to pandering to the unions. Never forget that the cost of government intransigence and in negotiating with the RMT, thus prolonging the strikes that we've all been seeing for the last few months has cost more than meeting their demands on pay. So this isn't actually about what's affordable uh, for the Treasury. It's about drawing a fixed and firm ideological line. So yes, I think we are going to see victories outside of those sectors which are being uh, really shaped by the direction of the Westminster-based Conservative Party. And what I'm interested uh, to see is actually what is going to happen with NHS England staff and the RMT, because that seems to be the real focus of ire for the Conservative Party. And those waves of strike action don't seem to be within, you know, any reach of uh dying down through, I don't know, sheer exhaustion. Uh, the more the government 
uh, dig their heels in. It seems that the more motivated and dedicated the union memberships become. On to our next story, and it's one of press censorship. BBC offices in Delhi and Mumbai have been raided by tax officials. It's the latest press institution to fall afoul of an increasingly hostile climate for journalists in India. Local media confirmed that documents were seized from the offices and the building sealed as part of a tax evasion investigation. Now, the timing of this raid is interesting. It comes as the BBC is under attack from India's ruling BJP party for airing a documentary that examined the rise of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his role in a series of Islamophobic riots in 2002, which left 1,000 people, mostly Muslim, dead. The BBC's investigation unearthed a British government report from that same year that found Modi, then Chief Minister of Gujarat State, where the pogrom occurred, was directly responsible for the anti-Muslim climate that enabled the violence. Now, in the years after these riots, nations like the UK and the US imposed a de facto travel ban on Modi for presiding over that 2002 massacre. But this was lifted as he rose further up the ranks of his party. Significantly, Britain was the first country to embrace Modi again in 2012, which was seen as a huge boost to his attempts to appeal to the mainstream. Now, after the BBC documentary aired last month, the BJP used an emergency law to ban it in India. This was defied by students across the country, leading to showdowns with the police. होने जाने में सात नंबर में वहाँ पे मोदी जी की जो नई डॉक्यूमेंट्री आई है उसकी स्क्रीनिंग होने वाली है जो बीबीसी ने बनाई है रिसेंटली। So प्रोक्टर ने आर्डर किया है कि सारे गेट्स को बंद कर दो। जो भी बच्चे किसी वाने मत दो सारी कैंटीन्स क्लोज्ड है हम लोग अंदर फंसे हुए थे खाने के लिए कुछ नहीं है बाहर आने के लिए बोल रहे कभी इधर से जाओ कभी उधर से जाओ अभी भी अंदर जाने के लिए एंट्री देंगे नहीं यहाँ पे now, India has had a proud history of press freedom, but since Modi came to power in 2014, there's been an increasingly hostile environment for critical reporting that has taken hold. And in 2022, India slipped to 150 out of 100, 180 countries that were ranked in the annual Press Freedom Index compiled by Reporters Without Borders. Censorship in India, both direct and self-imposed, is now rife, say human rights groups. Earlier today, I spoke to Sabir Sinha, a reader in development studies at SOAS and an expert on media and authoritarianism in India. I began by asking him about the pushback against the independence of media in India. The pushback against independent journalists and media has been ongoing, actually. So, I mean, this event of the banning of the BBC is, uh, is, has just come in the middle of a long sort of drawn out period in which Indian uh, media has has really had it with, uh, you know, a very heavy onslaught, I would say, of the state. So, you know, while this is going on, we've already had uh, journalists uh, who are being questioned, uh, firstly harassed by Hindu vigilantes, and then being questioned by for basically filing, you know, relatively um, regular kinds of stories on demolitions or the rise of the Hindu right in the state of Madhya Pradesh and so on. 
But, uh, and also, I mean, you know, just preceding uh, the, B- the BBC uh, documentaries having been screened, uh, the last of the ind- or semi-independent television channels had already been bought over by Mr. Adani, uh, which is, of course, one of the related and slightly different controversy. So I don't think that there's a single mainstream uh, Indian television channel at the moment in Hindi or in English that could be considered vaguely independent. Uh, what is going on, of course, is that there are small outlets and you can see two or three different kinds of attacks on them. Uh, obviously, the income tax uh, sort of raids or questions, that's one. Uh, second, uh, massive amounts of online trolling and attacks on uh, people who are writing from these outlets, and especially if they happen to be Muslims. Uh, and third, the uh, effective sort of hounding out of each and every journalist who seems to be writing anything critical on Modi and his government on any platform, whether it is print media, uh, in regional languages or in uh, English or, or, or in Hindi. So it's, it's an ongoing thing. And I think they're very concerned to close the any opening that still exists of anyone critical uh, of Modi in the run-up to the 2024 uh, elections, because I think they're fe- fearing that they're losing control of the narrative uh, at a very critical time. And of course, there are three state elections happening, so they'll try and tighten the screws as much as they possibly can. Sabir, could you just quickly outline what the Adani Group is and what takeover it mounted of a media organization? So the Adani Group is the biggest conglomerate in India. Uh, it Until two weeks ago, uh, Mr. Adani was the world's third richest person in terms of net value. Uh, they started off very small, about 15, 20 odd years ago, uh, and then got you know the odd government contracts for infrastructure and things like that. Now, um, around 2004, 5, uh, around the time Modi was sort of, you know, on his way up, uh, Adani made a pact, it seems, with Modi, where uh, the so-called Gujarat model, remember Modi was the uh, chief minister of the state of Gujarat, uh, that basic, there was a kind of a connection that was made between Modi, the chief minister, and Adani, the business house. Now, the more benevolent uh, sort of interpretation of that is that Modi was so impressed by the Japanese and the Korean and the Singaporean model, which has had a similar kind of a thing between state and capital, that he thought this was the way to go. Okay. Now, last three years, Adani's worth has basically risen by something like 260 times. And he then sort of, you know, rocketed up from being the sort of 600 richest person to the third richest person in the world. During all of this, uh, he was not initially that interested in media, but in the last two or three years, suddenly a number of television channels, newspapers, and the kind of crown jewel for them was a television channel called New Delhi Television or NDTV, which had a number of anchors who were, especially the Hindi language, but also some English language anchors who were extremely left-wing or very, very critical of Mr. Modi. So Adani goes, goes, uh, they had some issues with their own finances. Uh, In other words, they had debts that they could not repay. And at that point, Adani uh, sort of maneuvered a takeover by buying up the debt from the third party that NDTV was indebted to. And uh, right after that, the main person within NDTV, a man called Ravish Kumar, who had a viewership of millions because of his Hindi language uh, broadcasts, he left. And then when the Adani story broke out, uh, two or three of the remaining still respected journalists within NDTV were told that they could not cover that story within, uh, the, you know, on on that channel. Meanwhile, in the space of six days, Adani lost hundred billion dollars, 
and by now he has lost 160 billion dollars. Uh, and this is not a story that most uh, channels can, uh, you know, can, can basically carry. The only stories that they can carry on Adani is that there are plans for the <coughs> regulatory agencies to look into his finances. Uh, some of the major public banks and uh, major uh, insurance companies, public insurance companies, life insurance, and so forth, uh, that had invested in Adani, uh, you know, they have basically said that they are no longer going to invest money in that. Uh, Adani's debt is equal to 1% of the entire worth of India's GDP. So this is something really quite massive. But I think the whole sort of issue with the current control and chokehold that Modi has exercised via uh, the raid on the BBC is for there no longer to be any kind of a connection made between Adani and Modi. Remember, Modi campaigned on Adani's airplanes, with, which had the logo of Adani. Uh, during his election campaign, and not a week would pass by without some announcement that some new port or airport or coal mine or railway station or something or a defense deal, you know, would have would have been given to Adani. And of course, you might be interested to know that Boris Johnson, uh, his younger brother is, is, you know, Joe Johnson is one of the employees of Ilara Finance, which is a London-based Adani-owned corporation. And that Boris Johnson's son works for Adani's defense uh, firm, which is based in uh, in Ahmedabad in the state of Gujarat. So uh, there are all kinds of interesting connections which could have come tumbling out if uh, there was enough media space within India, and especially if there was collaboration between Indian and British media houses, uh, for, for there to be several skeletons uh, to tumble out of uh, tightly closed closets. What further impact might this BBC documentary have on Modi's grip on the country. We saw, you know, students across India defying bans on screening the documentary and subsequent clashes with police. Is this significant or is the cut through going to be limited thanks to the crackdown? They made it significant. Uh, you know, I mean, people would have had some screenings at university hostels or in, you know, they could have downloaded stuff off the internet. But uh, the fact that they banned it, invoking emergency powers, I think was was really, you know, quite excessive. There are many people I know who were not necessarily political, who then wanted us to send them links and things like that. Uh, and you know, simultaneous to uh, the BBC documentaries being released, uh, the Shah Rukh Khan blockbuster Pathan was released, and so people who who wanted other people to watch this uh, BBC documentary began actually posting links on Telegram under the name Pathan, uh, and that became the mode for dissemination. So they kind of rode on the popularity of the current Bollywood blockbuster uh, to spread it far beyond uh, what most likely would have happened. Also, uh, you know, given the fact that uh, people say repeatedly that much of what has been shown uh, in the two parts of the, of the documentary is, is not really new footage, there's some new footage, uh, I think a lot of people have have started watching this because uh, they have dismissed this as a conspiracy of the left wing and things like that. But when they see that the government's response has been so excessive and so repressive, uh, there's far greater curiosity about what exactly the films, uh, you know, what the two documentaries have really shown. So I think they've actually uh, scored a bunch of own goals in respect to this. Finally, the fallout from this BBC controversy in India do you think that the BJP are going to somehow turn this into a further attack on the minority Muslim population? 
Uh, look, I mean, if they could find a quick Muslim to blame, uh, I think they would just definitely go for that. But I think there's a, there's a lack of a Muslim angle. So I think what they're going to go in for is, uh, you know, kind of a Western global conspiracy. Uh, so, for example, one of the emails that I received, uh, you know, and of course there have been petitions floating around as well, uh, they kind of look at uh, this BBC documentary as... Um, you know, part of a, in fact, the email I received says it's an Islamo-Communist Catholic Vatican conspiracy. I mean, this sounds ex extremely incoherent, obviously, but uh, you, I think I would not be surprised that uh, a sizable, you know, proportion of the hardcore support for the BJP uh, actually firmly believes in that. I mean, in my own acquaintance, you know, this would involve, you know, people who are doctors in major hospitals or retired army people or public sector unit uh, you know, CEOs and so forth. So, I mean, it's it's quite a surreal scenario that, uh, you know, completely outrageous uh, stories are believed by extremely well-educated people. Uh, but I would imagine that there was a kind of a groundswell in favor of Modi taking some drastic action against the BJP, uh, if if reading the kind of tea leaves on social media can be, can be uh, you know, anything like anything to go by. Uh, one was seeing already that there was a call for uh, shutting down the BBC like Mrs. Indira Gandhi had done in 1975. And uh, to some extent, uh, while this might damage Modi's uh, image internationally and among the less hardcore support within India, this probably will work well within his hardcore support in India, which does see that there is a global conspiracy uh, by looking at the Adani report or by looking at the BBC documentary. Next story. Nothing seems to rile up sections of the right quite like the sight of employees tip-tapping away from their homes. Yes, we're talking about working from home. Well, bad news for them because new figures indicate the practice isn't going anywhere. According to the Office of National Statistics, levels of working from home peaked during the pandemic with almost half of working adults reporting having worked from home during it at some point in the past seven days in the first half of 2020. Two years later, when guidance to work from home was lifted in Great Britain, around 38% of working adults reported having worked from home. Throughout 2022, the percentage of working adults reporting having worked from home has varied between 25% and 40% without a clear upward or downward trend, indicating that homeworking is resilient to pressures such as the end of restrictions and increases in the cost of living. The real surprise, though, is that one of six of us has now declared that we're working from home exclusively. This graph is from The Times, but is based on the ONS data. As you can see, nearly half of workers still travel into work every day. A third of them have some kind of hybrid arrangement, working partly in the office and partly out of it. 16% of us work from home exclusively. And then there's the 10% who go to work every day even though they could work from home if they wanted to. Now, it's important to note that whether you're able to work from home or not massively depends on how well off you are. Surprise, surprise. This graph from the ONS so it shows that those with the highest pay are far more likely to be able to work from home than anyone else. 27% of the richest people work from home only, while over half have a hybrid arrangement. 
Now, the percentage of workers with the ability to do some working from home drops off as wages fall. And of those in the lowest bracket, earning up to £10,000 a year, just 8% work from home only and just 5% have a hybrid setup. Ash, first of all, what do you think of home working? But secondly, this looks to me like a potentially permanent change in how we conduct our working lives. And if it is... What is the political significance apart from the ability to do your chores at lunchtime? Well, I want to be like one of those columnists who writes off 800 words for the Express, decrying the rise of homeworking all from my villa in Marbella. So that's going to be uh, the character I adopt today. My name is Little Little. My name is Richard Littlejohn. Hello. Um, I mean, okay. So what do I think about homeworking? I think that homeworking can in many ways uh, meet two often opposing needs at once, one of the needs of the employer and and one's the needs of the worker. One, if you're an employer and you're paying huge overheads for commercial rent and energy costs, you are saving because, well, the rent and the energy costs are now all on the part of the worker. Two, if you're a worker and you've got commuting costs or you've got childcare costs, those are things which you save on by working from home. That degree of flexibility is something which lots of people have said they really appreciate because childcare is so prohibitively expensive. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that homeworking is in of itself a good thing. Um, Passing on the costs of running a business onto the worker or indeed for women, um, kind of entrenching that double burden, that dual shift even more by saying, okay, well, now you can be both a full-time worker and a full-time carer for your dependents. These aren't things which are necessarily good, but they represent a kind of accommodation with the pressures of late capitalism, which lots of people find make their lives more livable and for employers, um, you know, kind of, protects their profit margin a bit more because they're saving on rent and saving on energy. Um, The question of of whether or not working from home is good for the worker, I've got to be one of those really horrible people and go, oh, well, it's a bit of column A and it's a bit of column B. The bits which are good are, you know, potentially forms of, of greater autonomy, being able to structure your own time in a way which suits you. Um, and things which are bad are, of course, for lots of people, uh, getting rid of the distinction between work and home can be very stressful. Uh, it can make them feel more socially isolated. Um, and also, I think that something which is better with in-person working is creative work, collaborative work, ideas generating work. I find it really hard to do those things on Zoom. I think lots of other people do as well. Um, But again, the economy has seen a shift away from creative forms of work um, in so many ways. And the sort of growth of what you'd call white collar factory work of these like repetitive bureaucratic tasks that you do again and again and again. So why not do it with the comfort of your own fridge rather than in, you know, some shitty office that you've had to drive into in the middle of Reading. Um, it's not something uh, which makes your life all that more fulfilled. Um, and as for your last question about whether this is a shift which you're we're going to see made permanent, well, the conditions of the economy are reinforcing uh, home working 
So one, uh, the cost of transportation, whether that's public transportation or driving a car, those are things which are increasing. So the cost of commuting goes up. The attractiveness of homeworking also increases. Two, you've got that question that I sort of raised at the start, which is the issue of commercial rents. You're providing an economic incentive for employers to encourage more homeworking. And uh, lastly, you've got the cost of childcare. Now, childcare, as we all know, is hugely expensive. And that also doesn't necessarily mean that childcare providers are being paid more. Uh, the money's going somewhere, but you know, God knows where. Um, and so employers have kind of find, found a way to um, you know, slough off whatever responsibilities they might have had towards, you know, subsidized nursery or crash care and gone, oh, okay, well, you can just do that at the same time as you're working then. So all those things are actually moving in a, gen in a general direction of encouraging more homeworking. Uh, the reason why you've got so many people within the Conservative Party uh, and in the right-wing newspapers who are talking about homeworking as though it's advocating the cannibalization of children is because that devalues hugely uh, the property portfolios of commercial landlords uh, who are donors to the Tory party, who sometimes are the same people who own the newspapers. And if they're not the same people, they're certainly their friends. So that's why uh, homeworking is being presented as nothing less than the Antichrist. Um, it's not because it necessarily makes people less productive and, you know, take all those claims about being concerned about people's mental health with a big old pinch of salt. It's because it threatens the value of those properties. Just for the sake of our impress regulators, I must clarify that shitty offices do exist outside of Reading. Um, and I just want to say on this working from home story, a really interesting and pertinent comment that was made by the writer Misha Fraser Carroll the other day posting on Twitter. She wrote, Work from home is an important, reasonable adjustment for me and many others. Simultaneously, I was shocked to witness firsthand how much easier it can be for management to quash worker organising when workers are all atomised. We can reconcile these things, though. And then she went on to say, some of this is about the surveillance of comms channels, but it's also harder to sneak off to a cafe on lunch break to organise, etc. In my opinion, we should be turning to disabled communities for these answers because they've been organising beyond geographical barriers for ages. Final story. I'd begun to hope, perhaps foolishly, I will admit, that maybe we'd heard the last from Lee Anderson. But no, the new deputy chair of the Tory party has already given us his scintillating views on food bank users, asylum seekers, and the death penalty. But now a new video has emerged, and for my sins, we're reporting on it. And this one is pretty interesting, I will say. Before his appointment as deputy chair, Anderson gave an interview to the new Culture Forum. Now, if you are not yet acquainted with this wonderful group of people, it is a right-wing think tank, yes, one of the Tufton Street set. But in this interview, Anderson said something pretty fascinating. He said, the quiet bit out loud. The big thing in, in 2019, there was three things that won us the election. It was nothing to do with me. Uh, it, was, it was Brexit, it was Boris, it was Corbyn. Mm. And it was as simple as that. Those three things together was a great campaign, mm. great ingredients. Um, at the next election, we haven't got those three things. So mm, we're going to have to yeah. think of something else. It'll probably be a, cult, a mixture of culture wars and trans debate. <gasps> well... 
It's not like it wasn't completely obvious that the Tory party has run out of ideas, leaving it with just hate to campaign on. But I'm pretty sure sitting MPs, let alone deputy chairmen of the party, are not supposed to be letting us all in on that particular strategy. Now, that admission comes in the wake of a high-level defection from the Tories to Labour. Another one. Ian Anderson is the chair of Stonewall, and he was also Boris Johnson's LGBTQ business champion. But he resigned last year after Johnson refused to ban trans conversion therapies along with the rest of conversion therapy. And now, after decades of supporting the Tories, Ian Anderson has switched his allegiance to Labour. I got a sort of sneak peek of what I understand to be part of the Conservatives' election strategy for 2024, and it's to wage a culture war because they know they can't win on economics, and that's not for me. And, um, you know, there's a bit of a binary choice, I think, in UK politics, and I think we need a new government and a new prime minister, and that's why I'm backing Keir Starmer. So, what other wonderful election-winning ideas did Lee Anderson have? We need to make sure that every school and college and university mm. and hospital, every public building mm. in this country flies a union flag. Mm. That's, that's a good start. Every school in the morning, regardless of what faith they are or what, what type of school, independent, private, public, whatever, should sing the national anthem. When the Churchill statue got um, um, scribbled on, um, defaced, so me and colleagues went out the day after and actually scrubbed it clean and we made a big point of it. But it was sickening to see the protesters, the, um, the BLM, Riots mm. on Whitehall, you know, uh, goading our prime minister at the gates and our police. That wouldn't happen under Maggie. Mm. You know, I stood on the picket lines with my dad, uh, and I saw what the police did mm. back in back in eighty four. Mm. That would have been dealt with immediately. Mm. There would have been horses in, um, and there would have been, let's just say, robust mm. action taken, um, and there'd have been a few carted off to hospital as well. Anybody arriving here illegally should be detained. You yeah. shouldn't be put in a hotel. They should be detained. Secure a detention centre. I've said from day one, Peter, send them straight back to France. Mm-hmm. Straight back the same day. I don't know if Lee Anderson is aware, but it actually costs quite a lot of money to send people straight back to France. I presume that'll be a first-class Eurostar ticket, and I will take one, please. Uh, of what we saw, there was a fascinating video among his ideas, were obviously having the Union Jack flown in every sort of public building. But we also saw him play on his credentials as a former miner. Now, it is absolutely fascinating to see somebody who, as they say, stood on the picket lines, turn around and say Maggie would have cracked down on this law. Maggie would have got the police out. And Lee Anderson plays off these working class credentials a lot. But Lee Anderson was also has also been a prominent political figure for a long time. He was a Labour councillor before he defected to the Tories. But now Lee Anderson is obviously a Tory vice chair. And Ash, he seems to have leaked the Tory manifesto. Is it a winning formula? Well, look, never let it be said that 30p Lee isn't an innovator, but he hasn't actually invented the culture war strategy for the British Conservative Party or the political right in general. In many ways, this has been a playbook which has been returned to again and again by the Conservative Party, going right back to the 1980s, where Margaret Thatcher, yes, was all about deregulation, neoliberalism, privatisation, but also about smearing the Labour Party as the loony left. So they're full of ethnic minorities and gays and vegetarians, basically. Um, Those were the twin 
polls of her political pitch to the nation. It was a form of authoritarianism, a form of reactionary politics, which could make people believe that something was being conserved, something that was being preserved in the face of all of these rapid changes to the economy. If you want to look at David Cameron and his austerity agenda, he also tried to burnish his reactionary credentials, particularly around the issue of multiculturalism. Theresa May. Uh, she was trying to go all in on the hostile environment. Uh, a no deal is better than a bad deal. Her red, white, and blue Brexit, if you can cast your mind back all the way to the halcyon days of 2016. And then you've got Boris Johnson, who again was really playing the culture wars tune. Now, he also happened to have a political strategy which relied on using Brexit as a wedge which could open up those electoral fissures which had been growing in the Red Wall for quite some time and using Priti Patel as his kind of pied piper for the right-wing authoritarian flank. So, in many ways, Lee Anderson is just walking in the footsteps of many Conservative Party ideologues before him. Um, he's just doing it in perhaps a less unvarnished manner. And I think that the hollowness of going, ooh, some transphobia, lads, you know, just relying on that as a strategy is just glaringly obvious for everyone to see because what his party have done is create a shared uh, kind of electoral interest amongst homeowners are paying off mortgages and renters in the cities because they crashed the economy into the wall. And while I would like for we for us to live in a country where hateful ideology bigotry, transphobia was an electoral turnoff. Um, unfortunately, it's neither really a turn on nor a turn off. It's something which has become um, part of the so-called common sense, which gets shoved down our throats. I would like to believe that it's a turn off for people, um, but it's certainly not something which wins people over in the absence of something which they believe is going to materially benefit their lives. Because whether you voted Remain or whether you voted Leave, what we can all agree on is that people did vote for Brexit in the sincere belief that they would be better off because of it in some way, either because we stopped sending money to the EU or because immigration would create job opportunities for British nationals. Uh, sorry, a decrease in EU immigration would create more job opportunities for British nationals. Um, so it's hollow and it's laughable. Um, but Lee Anderson being the message carrier for this is a very deliberate strategy on the Conservative Party's part. I mean, you hinted at this, but I thought it was also something which was argued very persuasively by Owen Jones this week in The Guardian, is that Lee Anderson is what the Conservative elite think working class people are like. It's like the crudest caricatures and stereotypes have been kind of you know, Frankenstein-like sewn together to form one man. And he's the image of the working class that they're reflecting uh, back to them in the hope that it's going to make them feel some kind of cultural affinity. But what we know is that when it comes to working class people uh, who are young, they tend to have much more progressive social views than working class people who are old. That's the same with middle class people who are young. They tend to have much more progressive views than middle class people who are old. That's not a hard and fast rule, of course, but it is something which you see bear out in the polling. Um, 
And this this cultural redefinition of class, defining class in terms of your outlook rather than your state, your standing within the economy, that's something which benefits the right because what they can do is go, we're going to direct your anger away from wealth and towards people who really have more common in you than those superficial differences that you're being encouraged to look at. Um, and it's a formula which I like to sum up as reactionary politics plus regional accent equals working class is something which, you know, uh, is the, the model that Lee Anderson is, uh, you know, very much in, in the vein in, but also someone like, you know, Ben Bradley, who's actually privately educated, but presents himself as a kind of voice of the people. Because again, regional accent, reactionary politics, your working class mate, regardless of uh, your actual background or your current economic status. Um, so yeah, this is a really um, ugly political strategy. It's a hateful political strategy. But because the Conservative Party have got so little to offer uh, the voters in terms of a vision for making their lives better, it is also going to be a failure of an electoral strategy. We're running out of time, so what I will say is thank you so much, Ash, for being the best Valentine's date I could hope for. You know what? I couldn't think of a better way to spend Valentine's Day than being the flavour flavour to your illustrious Chuck D. (laughs) I prefer Tiffany Pollard. Now, thank you for watching this evening, everybody, and make sure to come back tomorrow at 6pm when the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Walker, will back. For now, you have been watching Navara Media. This has been Navara Live. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.